Welcome to the 9 p.m. Want to give a happy Lunar New Year shout out to our friends from East Asia. I know I saw some people in here that, that are celebrating happy Lunar New Year. Like four people. Okay, that's all right. Yeah, I thought that's all right. No, it's good. My family had a big celebration this weekend. My wife uh, is from uh, China, and so we have a big family festival and party this weekend. So uh, celebrating that with other friends in the room tonight, grateful for it. But we're not here to talk about that primarily tonight, although, you know, Lunar New Year is fascinating. If you've never heard about it, it's really kind of fun. Um, what we're really here to talk about is the Psalms. And we're going to specifically tonight look at Psalm 51. It is a psalm of repentance, and it is absolutely, positively glorious. And so if you have a Bible, uh, I encourage you to have that ready. But for the first round of the reading of the psalm, just hear God's word, this incredible poem about God's incredible grace. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions. My sins are always before me against you. You above all have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict. You are justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, and yet you desire faithfulness even in the womb for you taught me wisdom even in that secret place cleanse me cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean Wash me, make me whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness again. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sin. Blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so sinners turn back to you. Deliver me from this guilt of bloodshed, O oh God. You are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips. Lord, my mouth will declare your praise, for you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart you, O oh God, will not despise. So may it please you to prosper Zion. 
to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then, then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Brothers and sisters, the word of our Lord. Wow, isn't that good? It's so passionate. It's so genuine. Like you know that this psalm has a story, right? And it's actually a great thing. Very few of the psalms have, a, have the story that's connected to them given to us right there in the psalm itself. But this one actually tells us, if you were to open up to Psalm 51, the subscript at the very beginning of it tells us where this psalm came from and why it was written. It says, for the director of music, a psalm of David. Most of the psalms say that. that For the director of music, the psalm of David. And then it'll have some little thing about the kind of music that accompanies it. But this one has a little something extra. A psalm of David. When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Ooh. That's a juicy story. <laughs> Lust, sex, deceit, conspiracy, murder, cover up. Guys, before the Game of Thrones, there was David and Bathsheba, hey? This is quite the story we're walking into. You can read about it in 2 Samuel if you choose to. 2 Samuel 11 particularly is about David and Bathsheba. But let me just summarize briefly. As a young man, David uh, had been anointed to be the future king of Israel. As an adult, David became a national hero. He was a general who won many victories, brought freedom to the people of Israel. He eventually did become king, and one of the very first things that he does is bring the Ark of the Covenant, which is the sign of God's presence among his people. He brought it into the capital city with a huge festival of worship and celebration before the Lord. And David promised that under his leadership, God's law would be the center of the kingdom. Something went wrong. Because by the time we get to 2 Samuel 11, David had lost his center. He'd become pretty comfortable being a king. And one evening, he's walking on top of his palace roof. Perhaps he was looking up at the stars. And the words of Psalm 19 were going through his mind. The heavens declare the glory of God. And then he looked down. And something else caught his eye. A beautiful woman who threw, who though she thought she was covered in a veil of darkness, she could not keep herself from David's gaze. And he sends someone to find out, who is that? And the messenger comes back. That's Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. Now Uriah is one of David's guys. Uriah is one of his lieutenants, one of the guys who's been with David for years. They'd won a lot of battles together. Uriah trusted David. And in spite of that, 
while Uriah is off fighting a battle defending the kingdom, David slept with his wife, got her pregnant, had Uriah killed to cover it up, took Bathsheba home to be his wife. And he got away with it. Went on being king. Loved by everybody. He even looked like a good guy. Wow, David. Man, Uriah died. He took his widow into his own house and took care of her. Wow, David, man, what a guy. Gotten away with murder. Until one day, Nathan the prophet comes over. Now, Nathan and, Uriah, Nathan and David, had go, they go back a ways, too. As a matter of fact, Nathan's one of David's closest counselors. Not a huge surprise that Nathan would show up, but on this particular day, the day when David thought he'd fooled everyone, a year after all this had happened, 2 Samuel 12 tells us, and I invite you, just close your eyes and imagine what it must have been like to be David in this story. 2 Samuel 12 says, the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to David, and when he came to him, he said, my king, there were two men. They were in the same town. One was rich, and the other was poor. Now, the rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little lamb that he bought. He raised it. It grew up with him and his children. It shared his food. It drank from his cup. It slept in his bed. It was like a daughter to him. Some of you animal lovers know what he's talking about, right? A traveler came. He came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the traveler. Instead, he took the little lamb that belonged to the poor man. He prepared it for the traveler to eat. David burned with anger when he heard this from Nathan. Surely as the Lord lives, that man will die, or else he will pay him back four times what he owes. Imagine David's surprise when Nathan looks him in the eye and says, you are that man. You struck down Uriah and took his wife to be your own. You killed him. How's David feeling right now? What would you do? What would you do if a friend confronted you with a sin that was so well hidden you got away with it? What would you do? Maybe you can relate to this story in a really personal way. Have you ever had a really powerful experience with God? A time when you experienced God's grace in such a powerful and life-transforming way that you said in that moment, God, I want Christ and his ways to be at the center of my life. Wherever you lead me, I will go. I'm in. Maybe it was spring break last year. 
and you experienced God in such a life-transforming way, you said, I am in, Jesus. Whatever you want me to do, I'm in. Maybe for you it was high school, and when you were either baptized, or maybe you made your profession of faith or your confirmation, and you said, I want everybody here to know I'm with Jesus all the way. Maybe it was just last semester and God called you to faith and began transforming your life and you said, I am in. You committed that Jesus was going to be the center of your life. Something changed. And here you are. And you've been pretending like everything's just okay. Like sin hasn't begun to take over your life. What would you do if a friend came to you and confronted the sin like Nathan did? How would you react if your friend came and confronted you about your drinking or about how you're using pornography or about how you're sleeping with your boyfriend or lying to your parents or stealing from your roommate? What would you do? How would you react? Or maybe, how did you react when a friend did confront you about your sin? For David, we find that this confrontation with Nathan is a major turning point in his life. David's referred to often in Scripture as a man after God's own heart. And his response to Nathan's confrontation shows us why. It wasn't that David wasn't deeply flawed. David is a hot mess some of the time. Maybe you can identify. He was so just as much of a sinner as any one of us, but the key difference with David is how he responds when God calls him to repent and turn from his sin. And Psalm 51 is a poem that David wrote about that moment the moment when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And because it is a prayer that is born out of that moment, Psalm 51 has long been seen by Christians from the earliest days as a roadmap to restoration in our relationship with God. It's the gospel in poetic form. It's magnificent, isn't it? So let's look briefly at the different points in the journey of this roadmap. So if you want to open up, if you haven't done so already, you can open up to Psalm 51. David's journey toward restoration begins first by acknowledging his sin. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Right? That's triple washed, David is asking for. He is acknowledging, I need to be cleaned from this sin. Acknowledging sin is actually a really big deal in our culture, isn't it? It's so hard for us to do. We live in this culture that's perpetuated by denial. People will deny, deny, deny until all the evidence comes out in public and sometimes even deny it then, right? It's fake news, right? It's not real. Goodness, it's right there in front of you. 
We're seeing this in stark ways through the Me Too movement, right? Me Too movement, there's layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of denial that's finally being uncovered and when the sin is exposed, there's a choice that has to be made. Acknowledge the sin or deny it. If we want to be restored in our relationship with God, we have to acknowledge our sin. But acknowledgement's only step one. We're just getting started on this journey. Frequently, again, in our culture, that is just uh, perpetual denial. We hardly even get to step one, and when we get to step one, we think we're done. But God's transforming grace does not stop with only acknowledging sin. No, it's not enough to just say, I did something wrong. No, we have to admit that we're guilty. That's what Psalm 51 does, right? I know my transgression. My sin is always before me against you. You above all have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You are right in your verdict. You are just when you judge. Whoa, that is so radically different than denial. Right, it's one thing to say I did something wrong. It's a deeper thing to say and it was my fault. Right? It's the difference between an athlete acknowledging, yes, I use steroids, and then turning around and just saying, but all these other people failed me, and that's why. No, no, no. Admitting fault is not just saying, I did it, and everybody else messed up, that's why I did it. No, no, no. no. I did this, and I did it because I wanted to have a competitive advantage over the people around me. So I cheated. That's admitting fault. Very different, right? It's the difference between uh, admitting, yes, I did, I did commit sexual assault against somebody, but not turning around and then blaming on alcohol or society. No, I did this because I wanted to take advantage of another person. That's admitting fault. It's very hard to do in a culture of denial, but it is radically freeing. You see the difference, don't you? Admission of guilt says, I did this, and it's my fault. It's the road to restoration. It is really painful. Painful because it requires us to die. Die to our pride. Admit that we are wrong. And it puts us in the humiliating posture of having to say, Please forgive me. And that's actually the next part of the journey. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I'll be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness again. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sin. Blot out my transgressions. This is really, really hard. Frequently, we want to jump right over this part. Even if we're willing to acknowledge our sin and admit that we're at fault for it, man, we just want to jump right over the asking of forgiveness. Like, well, I already said I did something wrong, so we're good, right? No. There's no shortcut in this. 
There's no avoiding it, finding another way around. No, the road to restoration comes through true repentance, and true repentance requires at least these three things. Acknowledging our sin, admitting our guilt, and asking for forgiveness. Because until we get there, man, we can't get to the next thing. Not really. We can see it. We can maybe get a view of it over the horizon, but man, we can't get to the next thing unless we've taken these, the road of acknowledging, admitting, and asking forgiveness. But guys, we gotta get to the next thing because the next thing is so good. It's so worth it. The next thing, the next part of the road is accepting God's salvation. Create in me a pure heart, God. Renew a steadfast spirit in me. Don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. This next section, this is the center of of the poem itself, and it is all about God's amazing grace. In appealing to God's grace, David knows, he acknowledges right here, right now, there is nothing I can do about this. I have no way to fix this except to throw myself in the presence of God, acknowledging, admitting, asking forgiveness, and saying, God, please, you alone can purify me. You alone can renew me. You alone can accept me. You alone can restore me. You alone can sustain me. These are the works of Christ that Christ alone can give us. But we have to accept them. Accept the gift that's been given to us. And after and as we accept this gift, that's what allows transformation to happen. Right? We can't skip any of the places on the road or we're going to end up somewhere, but it's not going to be restoration. But if we'll follow this path, admitting, or excuse me, acknowledging, admitting, ex- uh, asking forgiveness, accepting that salvation, it allows us to experience the grace that changes us. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, says the psalmist. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, my mouth will declare your praise. For my sacrifice is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. Allowing the God's grace to change us means being committed to following the ways that Jesus has for us. Joshua testified about this earlier, right? God doesn't just wash it away. There will be consequences, quite frankly, for David because of his sin, but he will continue to follow God's ways knowing that those are the ways of restoration. For all of us, the sin in our life, does God wipe away the consequence, take it away? No, sometimes we have to, part of grace is walking into those consequences so that God can redeem, yes, redeem those things too. Allowing grace to change us means we lay down denial so that we can take up authenticity. It means we lay down pride so we can take up humility. When we allow grace to change us, 
Guys, we get to lay down the things that lead to death so we can take up the things that give life. Isn't that good news? Didn't I tell you this was the gospel right here in a poem? It's so good. Like, my plea for mercy that God would somehow have mercy on the terrible sin that takes over and has control of my life. My plea for mercy completely transformed into a sacrifice of praise because of this road, this journey of restoration. Praise God. Finally, we'll acknowledge our sin for what it is. When we'll admit, we're guilty, I did this. When we'll ask for forgiveness and accept the salvation that God has for us in Jesus Christ and allow his ways and his grace to change our lives, the last thing we see in the psalm is we begin to adopt God's purpose. May it please you to prosper, Zion, says verse 18 of the psalm, which our Lord Jesus Christ would expand to such a great length that David could never have even imagined when he teaches us to pray this prayer uh, in the gospel itself. May your kingdom come. May your will be done right here on earth just like it is in heaven. That's Christ's purpose. That's why he came. That's why he's coming back, to bring the glory, the joy, the love, the justice, the beauty of heaven right downtown. Amen? The Heidelberg Catechism is a wonderfully enduring document of the Christian faith from the early Reformation period. Puts this beautifully. It's set up in a question and answer format, and it says, what do you mean when you pray, may your kingdom come? And it says this amazing prayer, that God would rule us by your word and spirit in such a way that more and more we submit to you. Preserve your church, make it grow, destroy the devil's work, destroy every force which revolts against you and every conspiracy against your word. Do this until your kingdom fully comes when you are all in all. God's people say amen. Amen. This is our roadmap to restoration. We've been given this gift in Psalm 51. It takes us on this journey from God have mercy on me to sacrifice of praise. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. Everything for you, God, because that is what transforms me and that is what transforms the world. But this restoration comes if we'll walk on the journey, the journey of true repentance which always follows this road, acknowledging our sin, admitting our guilt, asking forgiveness, accepting that Jesus' salvation is the only salvation that can save me, allowing his grace and his ways to bring that joy and that life back to me and adopting God's purpose. So here's a question. Is there anything in your life right now that is keeping you from embracing this today? 
anything in your life that is creating a barrier between you and God and the full life of grace that he has for you. Something that you need to acknowledge, to admit, and to ask forgiveness for. As our band comes uh, back up, I'm gonna start us into a prayer. But really, we're just gonna be quiet. Together, when we begin this prayer, we're gonna take five deep, calm breaths. And in those breaths, we're gonna ask the Lord to reveal to us what's in the way. What do I need to acknowledge, admit, and ask forgiveness for? And in that silence, you're welcome to offer up those prayers to the Lord. And then the band is going to begin to lead us in a song, and that song is really our prayer, our prayer of response, asking God to wash us, to cleanse us, to make us new in Christ. to give us and lead us into the kind of lives that are anchored in Jesus' salvation, anchored in his grace, and directed toward his purpose. Is there anything keeping you from embracing that today? Let's bring it to the Lord.